Hello and welcome to another episode of The Cranog. We've got something a little bit different in store for you today rather than our usual discussion. For those of you who have been listening to us for a while, you might remember last May we did an immersive belting experience. We're doing something a little bit similar to that today where each of our hosts have recorded themselves telling a story. But we don't want you to think of it like that. We want you to imagine that you've been toiling in the fields, working on the farm. It's been a long, hard day and you're exhausted. And now what you're doing is you're coming inside. I want you to imagine a cosy hearth in whatever setting you see fit, whether it's a little farm cottage or a cranog on the lake. You've come inside and your family and your friends are gathered round, drinking wine or beer or whiskey or whatever you fancy and eating good food and telling good stories and that's what I want you to take from this episode. So I hope you enjoy. You know those big mountains can tell that you can see from the Rattigan Pass? Aye, the ones above Loch Duke that look like five identical peaks all poking up one after another. Well, have you ever heard of where they came from? Legend says there were once seven sisters who lived near the loch, the lovely daughters of the Chief of Kintail. They were getting on a bit. All of them had reached the age where they should really have been married and leading their own home, but they were still bustling around her father's house. The Chief was too soft for his own good. He refused to force his daughters to marry for wealth or to further his family status. Instead, he was content to let them bide their time while they waited for their heart's desire, their perfect match to turn. In truth, he liked the sound of a fool hope, and all the girls chasing each other, laughing and joking, you know, keeping the place alive. And then one day, a vicious storm smashed the west coast of Scotland. The force of the winds tore trees from the ground and the pouring rain turned gentle rivers into raging torrents. It was a storm to end all storms. But when the weather finally eased, everybody had been stuck inside for days, so the two youngest sisters took the opportunity to wander down to Loch Dew, their feet crunching along the pebbly beach. And there they discovered a strange ship that had been wrecked on the rocks. Amongst the smashed woods lay two Irish princes, looking a little worse for wear. They'd been caught in the storm, blown far off course, but had managed to limp to safety in the loch. Well, if you thought that had been a stroke of luck, there was nothing compared to the chances of being found by two girls as beautiful as these. Well, it was clear that the girls considered themselves equally fortunate. They raced back home with a dashing Irishman in tow, slamming the door with excitement to the surprise of their father. Respectfully, the men asked for permission to marry the girls, but the old chief of Kintail refused. He would help them to return home, but princes or not, he couldn't allow his youngest daughters to marry before his eldest. Some traditions just shouldn't be broken. These Irishmen had the gift of the gap. And quick as a flash, they explained they had five older brothers back home. All of them were ready to marry. If the chief would just let them return with the two youngest as their brides to show off their beauty, well, the brothers would undoubtedly race straight to Kintail for the others. 
Reluctant, after an awful lot of pleading from the girls, the chief let out a big sigh, and he agreed. A huge party followed to wish the happy couples a safe journey and a happy life, and then they sailed off into the sunset. The older sisters couldn't wait to see their promised husbands, and every day the five of them would gaze out to sea, scanning the horizon. The sight of any mast or sail would cause a flutter of excited chatter every time they were disappointed. And while they waited for their Irish princes, the girls turned down any other offer that came by, even the good ones. The chief began to get worried that his daughters would grow old and tired while he insisted on waiting. Those proposals would start to dry up and eventually it would be too late. They'd have lost any chance of marrying and having their own happy ever after. He visited a renowned local wizard, the wisest man that the father knew, to ask for his advice. All he wanted was for his daughters to remain beautiful until they saw some sense. It was still to be admired by all while they waited for their Irish princes. So you want the sisters to be beautiful and admired forever, eh? I can make that happen, said the wizard, but only if you're sure that's what you want. The chief nodded enthusiastically, shaking the wizard's hand and heading off home with a smile, his daughter's future assured. But when he woke in the morning, things weren't quite what he had expected. It was silent inside the house. Just his own creaky footsteps and a drip of water from some leaky bit of the roof. The girls were nowhere to be seen until he pulled back his curtains and looked out the window. There they were, right outside, not in the form of his lovely daughters anymore though, but transformed by the wizard into five majestic mountains. Seen from the Rattigan Pass or along the road to Glenshield, those peaks have been known as the Five Sisters of Kintail ever since. The sisters stand shoulder to shoulder, still waiting for those Irish princes to come for them, but at least are every bit as stunning as they were on the day that their father made his unfortunate wish. Stories about red caps have featured throughout folklore even as long ago as the 14th century, and they are feared and renowned fairy creatures said to originate from the borders. Many pieces of art featuring a red cap would show him as having the appearance of a frail, tortured dwarf, and he would usually be wearing human clothing and steel boots. But the most iconic part of his look is the red cap on his head, usually just covering the top of the head and his ears, but sometimes as a longer sleeping hat style cap always in the bright colour red, which is what gave them their name. Red caps are also sometimes depicted as having a long nose, or even a beak similar to that of a bird of prey. They may also have elongated ears, or more pointed ears similar to that of an elf, and they usually resemble a combination of different fairy creatures. Due to the colour of the caps, the creatures will be very easy to spot, which is likely what added to the fear induced by seeing one in the wild. Redcaps would often dwell castle grounds, including the very creepy Hermitage Castle, but others similar to it and always near the borders between Scotland and England. It's said that it's likely what they are attracted to is the violent history of the land, because during times of battle, redcaps would find fallen soldiers and dip their caps in their blood, which is what gave them the bright red crimson colour. Other tales tell stories of redcaps killing the soldiers themselves, 
and without discrimination of which side soldiers were on, anyone would be fair game for a red cap. This is also probably why red caps are often called British folklore characters or English slash Scottish folklore creatures. It seems neither side wants to claim ownership of such evil beings. Though you may be wondering how short fairy creatures like this would be able to overpower a human soldier, as in many other tales, the fairies would flee as soon as they see large crowds of people. However, despite their appearance, red caps are very agile and fast, and they're also said to be immune to human strength. The only way to banish one would be to use a crucifix or recite Bible verses, and this would make them retreat or may even kill them if they burst into flames. Some stories also say that if their caps became dry, this would also cause their demise, as they would be starved of the blood which fuels them. This was discovered during times of peace across the land, as red caps were not able to get their fill of blood, and would retreat into their lair, awaiting for passer-by, or without this, they would simply perish. However, as with all folklore tales, there are many variations of red caps. In some stories, they are actually the ghosts of fallen soldiers, simply carrying out their revenge. But in others, in the more common tales, they are demons, they are possessed fairy creatures, and this is likely why the crucifix is said to kill them, as it would send the demon back to hell and free the fairy creature. Unbelievably, there are also tales of good red cats who actually bestow good fortune and luck to those who see them and greet them, but given the majority of tales are often about them being very violent, I don't know about you, but I would rather not take my chances. As I made my way around the island, I saw a woman wandering the roads, singing a terribly mournful tune. Her clothes were ragged and speckled with mud, while her hair hung in thorny brown clumps down her back. Well, you know me. I was too curious to think about not finding out what she was doing. I followed her for two full days. She never stopped. Countless times I nearly lost her on the road, desperate to sit down and recover my breath, to eat, to drink, to stand by a warm hearth and feel my toes again. But she never stopped. Finally, I had enough. I was nearly mad after two days of sore feet and the maddening mournful song she wouldn't stop singing. I tried to grab her by her arm. I remember how she felt like stone, deathly cold and rigid. It was like grabbing a statue's arm and expecting it to hop down from its plinth. It was so long ago now, and I can't remember if her eyes were blue or brown, but I remember they gleamed with the cold fire of hatred. Her face was so twisted, so distorted with malice, I nearly jumped out of my skin. The poor woman was obviously possessed by some kind of fairy. Don't look at me like that, Rebecca. I know what I saw. Just like I know I did see a kushi last Friday, and you are lucky I was there to point it out, or you'd be dinner. Anything else to add? Okay. Anyways, at that point I was luckily close by to Dervig, so I used the last of my strength to flee from the woman to the inn there. While I was recovering by the fire, I asked about the creature that had near frightened the life out of me. The barman there knew immediately what I had seen. 
he told me of two sisters that had lived down in Loch Bui. The eldest was tall and kind and beautiful and such a joy to have in the town they all knew her as the lovely Maraid. The youngest was small and kind and was so devoted to her sister she followed her everywhere so they all knew her as Limpet Ailsa or just Limpet. One day one of the young lads came up to Ailsa. He heckled her and prodded her and generally bothered her as only a young lad can do asking over and over again about lovely Maraid. Who does she fancy Limpet? Do I have a shot, Limpet? Can you put in a word, Limpet? Limpet, Limpet, Limpet. Finally, the girl snapped. My sister would never have one of you idiots. Don't you know, she's taken up with a fairy lover who brings her the finest gifts and is more handsome than any of you lot put together. Of course, that drew a great laugh from the crowd. <laughs> Elsa stared them down with a challenging gaze, breaking into a small, smug smile. Don't believe me. Come along to our house tonight at dusk. You'll believe me then. It wasn't really unusual behaviour for Limpet Elsa. She often proclaimed her sister was the most beautiful in the Isles, in Scotland even, and had caught the eye of selkies and kelpies and lairds and knights. She was just so proud of lovely Maraid and was desperate to show her off. At the time, only the old grannies believed her and tried desperately to tell the others to keep away not listen to the foolish bragging of a young girl and tempt the ire of the she. Maybe if they had listened, there wouldn't have been all this trouble. But the lads followed Elsa down to the cottage she shared to her, with her sister, and maybe a few other folks came along too. There's nothing like free entertainment after all. And they were giggling and joking, excited to see Limpet all embarrassed. Here, the barman looked at me seriously. I was there that night, you know. He was polishing a glass at the bar, the bulbous shape distorting his face in the flickering light of the fire. I saw him, a fairy I mean. He appeared as if from nowhere, and though he looked like a man, you could just tell that he wasn't. It's less about what he looked like, but I could swear even the birds stopped singing and the clouds stopped moving in the sky. It was like the world was frozen waiting to see what he would do and, and we were hidden but not nearly hidden enough and, and then young Jim fell and he stopped suddenly staring down at the bar frightened I felt a cold gust of air at my back even next to the warm fire like someone just at the edge of my hearing had breathed out after a brief pause the barman returned to his task anchoring himself in the monotony of polishing glasses the fairy vanished after that and I never saw him again. Limpet was so proud at first. Everyone knew she was right, after all. But then lovely Maraid flew out of the house, scraping at the wood of the door, screaming and wailing for her fairy. We found out then that she had warned Elsa never to tell a living soul, or else she'd be abandoned by her lover. The man huffed, putting down the glass at last. He told me the lovely Maraid never forgave Limpet to Elsa for her betrayal. He told me that she became a wanderer among the hills and hollows and never afterwards came inside of a house door to stand or sit down. He told me they used to try to approach her, sometimes, to beg her to return home to her limpet, that she was sorry, that she was crying and desperate and lonely without lovely Maraid. All they ever heard in return was her song, 
cruel words spoken in hatred, calling for Ailsa to be cursed with all the power of the Fae. If a Fae being his power, revenge will be taken, though it may be on your descendants. <sighs> I wish the story ended here. The other day I ran into a woman from Mull, and I asked her whether lovely Maraid was still wandering the roads, or if she had forgiven her sister at last. She told me that limpet Elsa spent a whole year trying to speak to her sister, but never succeeded. With a broken heart, she retreated to the north of the isle. She tried to move further, but there was always a little part of her that hoped to clutch onto her sister again, like she once did. While there, she married a handsome man and soon had a young son, Torquil. He was so like his Aunt Maraid, a tall boy with shining brown hair and a, such a joy to have in the village. He grew into a fine young man, the best reaper among them. He could reap as much as seven men, and none on the isle could compete with him. He was always challenging the other reapers at harvest time, proud to be the worker with the most skill. A wee while back, a strange woman was seen in the fields there, and like Torquil, she was a demon with the sickle. She stayed in a field from sundown to sunup and could do the entire thing herself. The people on Mull called her the Maiden of the Cairn, as one man swore he saw her emerge from a cairn bordering on the fields and return there the next morning. They didn't know whether she was a gift or a curse just yet, but Torquil, well, he was incensed. He was supposed to be the best reaper after all. Ugh, is there anything worse than a young person's pride? Torquil went out one night to see the mysterious woman. He couldn't resist the need to compete to prove himself just as good as a fairy. So he took up his sickle and began to work alongside her, sure that he would overtake her as easily as he had overtaken everybody else. But the harder he worked, the further away she drew from him. He was aware of the town silently watching at the edge of his field. He swore he could hear her giggle. Finally, he called out, Maiden of the Cairn, wait for me, wait for me! The figure did not stop. Her soft voice barely carried over the swish of her blade. Handsome brown-haired youth, overtake me, overtake me. It was futile, it was stupid. Had his mother never warned him about the tricks of the fairies? Maybe, even if she had, he still would have thought he might have beaten her. If he could only work a bit harder, reap a bit faster. Of course he couldn't. I'm very weary with yesterday's reaping wait for me wait for me he tried i ascended the round hill of steep summits overtake me overtake me she replied my sickle would be better for being sharpened wait for me wait for me he begged my sickle will not cut garlic overtake me overtake me she replied with that she reached the end of the furrow and stood finally waiting for him when he reached her at last his legs were shaking and his chest was heaving he caught the last handful of corn, the bundle meant to be the harvest maiden. That charm we make out of the last corn cut by the last man, and keep in our homes until the next harvest. With a final sweep of his sickle, he claimed his prize, conceding defeat to the fairy woman. At this point, the watchers from the town saw the maiden of the cairn turn to the young man, watched him recoil and drop the harvest maiden to the ground. She spoke in a whisper but a whisper that seemed to come from right behind you, that crashed through your ears and bounced around inside your head. It's an evil thing, early on a Monday, to reap the harvest maiden.
After she said this, the villagers watched as Torquil, tall, proud, lovely Torquil, fell dead in the field. The watch they fruitlessly searched for the Maiden of the Cairn to beg for Torquil's life back, but she had vanished from that place, finally granting lovely Maraid's wish and destroying what was left of her family. She vanished soon after too. The wander on the roads is no longer a feature of the landscape, and just a story told in bars or in Cranogs to frighten passers-by. I'm telling you this to remind you. Fairies are not to be messed with. That's why when we see a great big kushi, we run the other way. Right, Rebecca? Thank you. We don't mess with fairies. I'm also telling you this because as scary as a fairy is, it's only a human that can bring their curses to life. Maraid had so much hatred for her sister, for a simple mistake. It caused her to leave bloody, broken footprints on the roads of Mull, and it caused her to wish for the most cruel of punishments on the very girl she used to adore. In the end, it was Maraid that caused the ruin of her family, more than any fairy ever could. Right, Rasheen, I guess I'll believe you, it was a fairy after all. But I can do one better. Here's a story about the devil himself. This story takes place in deepest, darkest Fife, in the village of Krill, to be precise. And one day, from deep down in hell where he was sitting, the devil heard work happening from up above. He was curious, so he ventured out to see what was going on, and he found that there was work happening up above on the land, and there were men building a church. The devil was feeling pretty mischievous, so he disguised himself as one of the masons working on the church, and he approached the master mason who was in charge. And he said, Master, give me a job as a mason on your site. So the master mason looked the devil up and down and he shrugged, because the only thing that he could see was a young man with soft blonde curls and soft hands and scrawny arms. He thought, what good can this boy do for me? So he grunted, why would I do that, boy? Well, said the boy, who we know as the devil, I'm the most skilled mason in all the land and I'll have your church up in no time at all. The master mason laughed and he made to turn away, but the devil caught him on the shoulder and said, I won't go away. I'll stay right here until you give me a job. So the master sighed. It had been a long hot day and he was looking forward to getting home, so what harm could a couple of extra pairs of hands do? Besides, some manual labour would likely do the boy some good, and if he managed to get the church built quickly, then it meant that the mason would get his money quicker. So he sighed and said, Alright, go and work with the apprentices, and with a firm glare, looked at the devil and said, Don't make me regret this. And so the devil got to work. Now, we should clarify that our devil, our old Nick, he is no liar. He was indeed a skilled mason, but he was a skilled mason because his abilities were imbued with witchcraft. And as if overnight, like he promised, the church appeared to spring up in no time at all, all seemingly thanks to the young apprentice that had appeared and asked for work. The master mason was quite impressed with this and he enjoyed the credit that the locals gave him for the speed of his work. But as we know, the devil's not the generous sort. 
So what motive could such a hellish fiend have for building a church? You see, the devil knew that if he worked to build the church at a magical speed, the locals would be first impressed with the Master Mason. But soon, when the walls and spires started to spring up overnight, the townspeople would grow suspicious of the Master Mason. For what could make work happen so fast other than witchcraft? There was one fellow apprentice on the site that was suspicious of the devil. He didn't trust how the tools seemed to move like quicksilver in his hands, and that he could do ten times the amount of work of any of the other boys in about half the time. As well, he didn't look the part. He didn't have any muscles. He looked weak. So he watched the devil carefully from his post, and he noted the way that each day, once the work was done, the devil slunk away at dusk, until one day the boy plucked up the courage to follow him. It was as the young apprentice was slipping around one of the incomplete walls that he saw something which he would never forget. His jaw dropped and his face went white. For as the mysterious apprentice slunk away into the gloaming, he morphed from a young man into a beast. He grew twice in height, his clothes melted away, and where his legs once were, two goat-like legs cloven hooves burst out. A forked tail slicked out from his rear and two razor-sharp horns glittered menacingly from his forehead. The boy gasped, perhaps a bit too loudly. For the first time, the devil seemed to jump with fear and he spun around to face the boy with the rage of a bull burning in his eyes. You devil! the apprentice shouted, stumbling back from the side of the kirk. May God have mercy on the souls of we masons, the devils in our midst, he cried, running as fast as his legs could carry him out of the kirkyard, into the street and through the town. All the while, the devil was hot on his heels. He could feel the very flames of hell licking his trail because the devil is one fast beast. At all the commotion, the townspeople opened their doors and windows and they peered out, as nosy as ever, from their evening supper into the street where the young mason apprentice was being hounded by the very devil himself. With all eyes upon him, the devil stopped in his tracks. The boy scampered away, safe for another night, and the devil knew that he'd lost. With a heavy groan that shook like thunder, he stamped a cloven hoof on the cobblestone, and in a fiery instant, he was gone. He's one for a dramatic exit. And suddenly, no sooner than he'd departed, there was a great rumbling and a blistering crash that shook the town and toppled over the evening supper. No one knew where it had come from, until the next morning when the masons were setting out to work on the church, they had to do the final touches to it. To their great shock and horror and disappointment, they found their work decimated, and a big blue stone sat slap bang in the middle of the rubble, and on its surface was the molten thumbprint of the devil himself. Meanwhile, the devil sat on the Isle of May, only a few miles out from the town, <laughs> laughing as he watched after the path of the stone. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. 
If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Ko-fi page which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.